we live in two worlds at the same time. There is the physical world and there is the spiritual world. We can see, touch, taste, smell, hear, and intimately engage each other in the physical realm. But the spiritual world is all around us too, but differently. We cannot touch, taste, smell, hear, or see this world, but it is just as real. Imagine this. It takes all of our lives to learn how to live well, practically speaking, in the physical world. What about the unseen realm? How difficult it must be to live well with what we cannot see. The temptation would be natural to dismiss the spiritual world, but that would be a mistake, and that is why I want to talk about it in this podcast. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. I am Rick Thomas, and you're listening to the Life Over Coffee podcast. I am building the video, doing the podcast at the same time as I'm sharing this article with you. If you want to read, watch, or listen, you can find all three of these resources in one place on our website. And here's the title of the resource, Spiritual Warfare, Tips for Fighting in the Spirit World. Someone wrote in recently, and they they asked or suggested that biblical counselors do not spend enough time talking about the spiritual world. Well, I just recently did an episode. I think it's like episode 406. I'm not sure exactly, but you will find it in our Life Over Coffee episode uh, resource collection. Look around episode 406, and I did an entire one-hour podcast devoted to the spiritual world. Now, it's going to be different from what I'm going to present here, and the reason I'm saying that is so that you can put both of these resources together. This one here, Spiritual Warfare, Tips for Fighting in the Spirit World, and then also episode maybe 406, uh, you can listen to that entire one hour, and that will give you some solid content in this area of the spiritual war spiritual realm, spiritual warfare, and it is something that is absolutely essential. Though we are dependent upon God creatures in the physical world, we are even more so in the spiritual realm because there are a host of unseen beings all around us tempting us, antagonizing us, hoping to annihilate us. You may remember what the devil said or what it was reported of the devil's, uh, the devil's his agenda that he has, he has come here to seek to kill and destroy us. Now, most certainly there are beings in the unseen world that are for our good, but there is a host of unseen beings who have no other aim but to destroy us. Therefore, a biblical worldview about the spiritual world, well, it's not the stuff from the imagination of the sci-fi fan, but it's from the Bible. And therefore, we want to make sure that we are bibliocentric when we think about Satan and the demonic activity, who, again, their designs are to disrupt as much as they can in our lives. In fact, you see this explicit and shocking picture of it in the first chapter of Job. Uh, For example, verse number 12 says this, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. 
So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, there is a lot packed in those couple of sentences, and I will not be able to unpack it for you. But the Bible does give us a behind-the-scenes peer into some of the dynamics of what's going on with Satan, and so we want to think about it and hopefully make some applications that will impact how we live personally and also how we interact with others. The good news is that the leader of this world, Satan, is not God's evil equal. Now, that is important. Sometimes some people act as though Satan is omnipresent and is omnipotent and is omniscient. He is not any of those three things, meaning he is not everywhere all the time at the same time. He does not know all things and he does not have all power. His forays into our space cannot happen without the permission of the Almighty. Now, there is something scary about that, as I was just reading to you from Job chapter 1, verse number 12, where God permitted Satan to touch Job, to engage Job, to come out against him, but yet there was limitations in what the Almighty permitted Satan to do. And so Satan's ability is a it's limited in power, limited in scope, and limited in effect because he's under the authority of the ultimate higher power whom we call Yahweh, Jehovah God, God Almighty. We do see his limitations in the book of Job, where God was the one giving orders and setting the boundaries to what Satan could and could not do. Knowing the limitations of Satan and his demons brings confidence, and it brings hope for God's children, though it's still foolish to presume about his activity in our lives. As followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are in the middle of a tremendous cosmic battle at every moment of our lives, a different battle from anything we have ever imagined or could imagine. This struggle is a cosmic conflict waged in the invisible spiritual realm, though the effect of this world can be seen and it can be felt in our real world lives and relationships. Though we cannot see, we can definitely experience the effect in the physical realm. If God gave us spiritual eyes to peer into the unseen world, I think we would be left quivering in our boots. Though our demonic adversaries have a limited time to operate and are subservient to the Lord, they do have a battle strategy, and that strategy is to keep us living in our self-made worlds preoccupied with what we can see not giving much thought to their world or their satanic strategies. The proper response must begin with a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ, and I cannot overstate that. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then Satan is your father, and he will have more sway in your life than if you were a child of Jehovah. If you do not know God as your heavenly father, meaning you have not been born again, 
perhaps you do not know how to be regenerated, to be born a second time, then I would encourage you to reach out to us. We would be glad to walk you through that process because that is the beginning of a proper strategy to engage this unseen world. Of course, Satan's number one strategy is to keep the message of Christ hidden from us, blinding the eyes of those who need the gospel's message. The demons know the battle is over. Ultimately speaking, if anyone becomes a believer, though these demons will never give up and they will never relent. What the demons will do, the satanic strategy, they will pivot, as we say in marketing, they will pivot to an alternate aim. And part of that alternate aim is to keep us living busy, natural lives, similar to the unbelievers, those who are all about us in our culture. He wants us to live. We can't live as them, as, as unbelievers, futile in our thinking, but we can live, practically speaking, almost like unbelieving believers. Though we are very much born again, from a practical perspective, we could function as atheists in this world. This alternate strategy uses the art of deception to keep us off balance while trusting in ourselves. Demons are master magicians whose sleight of hand is more than a parlor trick. Heaven and hell are at stake. And that is as high as you can place the importance of understanding what is happening in the spiritual realm. And our spiritual maturity, our personal relationships are at stake too. Let me give you three illustrations of what I'm talking about. And these illustrations are just, are just a sampling of what could be a virtual endless list of how the enemy's tactical strategies and deceptions are are put forth to displace us and to keep us uh, keep us off balance so that we cannot uh, implement divine strategies for engaging in spiritual warfare. Here are three illustrations. He wants us to live life our way rather than God's. He wants us to be self-centered, not God-centered. He can do this by amplifying the cares of this life to where God becomes an aspect of our lives rather than all of our lives. The cares of this world can be so encumbering, so uh, deceptive that it keeps us busy and off balance. Another way, another strategy of the demonic beings is that they want to confuse us, thinking right is wrong and wrong is right. For example... If possible, he would have us to believe that girls can be boys and boys can be girls. Imagine that, that the demonic evil influences of this world can be so persuasive that people can be confused about simple, basic biology. Here's a third illustration. He wants to marginalize the practical gospel. He aims to mute the practical realities of the gospel to where there is a desensitization of its potency. We can do this by being tempted to submit to the zeitgeist of this age. The spirit of the age is what zeitgeist means through social media. 
For example, we could be so preoccupied with the spirit of this age through social media that we are distracted and deformed, spiritually speaking. These are just three illustrations of how demonic activity can keep us off balance, unguarded, and submitted to uh, things that uh, create a spiritual intimacy, uh, impotency in our lives. It would be easy to learn about the spiritual world and, quite frankly, just throw in the towel. As you listen to these three illustrations, I know some people could be overwhelmed by it. How can we win with such a formidable foe? Well, the answer begins by requoting the well-worn cliche that we must preach the gospel to ourselves daily. The truth is we have already won. We do not need new truth. And I know that when I say we preach the gospel to ourselves daily and we have already won, it does sound like a cliche. It does sound like a bumper sticker that we would put on our car. Just because 25 cents is laying on the street and it is, it appears to be worn out and ran over so many times, it is still 25 cents. The value of preaching the gospel to ourselves may be a well-worn cliche, but that is the truth that we need. We do not need new truth. We need the old truth, and the old truth says that we have already won. We are more than conquerors through Christ who died for us. The fact and the effect of the gospel are what guards and fortifies and nourishes our hearts. The war is already over, and the victory is secure. This is what we call in theology the already but not yet of the gospel. There is an eschatological reality, a future reality that we have already won and that we are more than conquerors through Christ who died for us. And we can bring that future reality into our present tense circumstance and benefit from it practically today, the already but not yet of the gospel. It's not about winning the war. That's not what's at stake here, but it's about learning how to fight the ongoing battles that make up our spiritual warfare until we make our triumphant crossing to our homeland where our victorious king is waiting to receive us. If we don't learn how to do battle in the spiritual realm in the right now, the enemy will distract us and will minimize our usefulness to God and our impact in God's world. We will be defeated and we will be tempted to live discouraged and distracted lives. We will be pitiful victors. Isn't that a, an awful combination of words that we are pitiful victors? Imagine going into a game knowing that we have already won the game, but we acted as if our opponents have defeated us. It does not make God's name great or put his son on display when we behave like spiritual lightweights. Some of us tend to live defeated and distracted lives, and I have been in those ruts from time to time, and so I'm not necessarily admonishing you unless you need that admonishment, but it's partly due to the distractive influences of the enemy that we are not discerning or we are not actively engaging, and I trust what 
I am sharing with you here will help to fortify and guard your heart while giving you practical ways to engage in this spiritual warfare. Demons are deceptive and they are formidable. I'm not going to hide the ball here. And we can be spiritual lightweights by comparison. A lack of theological precision and practical application can elevate these devilish beings to where it mutes the work of the Lord in our lives. Being a spiritual lightweight is what some of the believers in Corinth were accusing Paul, the great apostle, of being. They did not see his qualities as significant, as robust, as dynamic, or powerful enough for the false teachers. They were accusing him. He was too he was too weak. He was not what they expected. It reminds me of what the Israelites wanted in Samuel's day. They wanted a king who was head and shoulders above the rest. They saw things a particular way and they knew the solutions was big and powerful. And so they wanted Saul. The Corinthians saw Paul as a weak man, not a great and powerful apostle who could blow away the opposition. These false teachers accused him of walking in the flesh, human weakness, because he had an unimpressive leadership style. Paul had an unspiritual sense or a substandard way of modeling spirituality according to how the world views and displays great leaders. They said he carried out his ministry more pragmatically rather than dynamically. In some circles, these personality types are the ones who are said to be called by God to lead others because they are dynamic, they are powerful. Paul was not your stereotypical alpha male. The alpha worldview is a trumpeted sense of spiritual superiority that others can see. That's what we see in the, spirit, in, in the physical realm. But in the spiritual realm, God is looking for something else, and it's not as impressive as what we think, especially if, if we have an alpha male worldview. The Corinthian false teachers took their cues from what they could see in the culture. Effective spiritual leadership looks like, and then fill in the blank. It would be interesting to take that test in any local church. Tell me what an effective spiritual leader is. Tell me what you're looking for in your pastor. Paul did not fit their fill-in-the-blank expectations. They claimed they were better than him because they had more visions. They had more demonstrations of power. They were dynamic alpha males. All Paul had was the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Notice how Paul saw himself which was the problem if you viewed him through an alpha lens. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10.1. He says, I, Paul, myself, I like that three times. Don't want you to miss the redundancy here. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I am a, I, I who am humble when face to face with you. Paul was not that dynamic leader that they were looking for. It was Christ that they did not understand. If we base true spirituality on personality qualities or individual dynamic styles, we will undoubtedly have to devalue the cross. 
If we value strengths, personality, charisma, or our preferences more than character-driven, competent, courageous, compassionate leaders, it will not be long before we steer the church into a ditch. Personality evaluations and strengths are good, and on one level, there is nothing wrong with them. We want to commend them, but it is easy to interpret the gospel through what we value in our culture's assumed leadership qualities rather than explaining the culture through how we understand the gospel. If these strengths do not put the gospel on display, practically speaking, it is nothing more than personal power, a horrendously weak virtue for the spiritual realm. When gospel-less values become the criteria for making decisions, choosing leaders, rather than the gospel being the centralized criteria, we will make many blunders in the name of good intentions. Many evangelical leaders have substantial leadership strengths, and we applaud them for their gifts. The problem with a few of them, and we have seen this many times over the past two decades, for example, is how the gospel is not the filter through which we should evaluate men and women. Perhaps a little less personality would be better for the spiritual battle that we're waging. Jesus and Paul are two examples of unimpressive-looking people who did incomprehensible things because they relied on someone far greater than their native exhibitions of human strengths. Paul gave us a clue about this in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, where he says, Indeed, we have felt the sentence of death, but that was God who was making us not to rely on ourselves, but to rely on him who raises the dead. Paul went on to say in 2 Corinthians, When I am weak, then I am strong. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said this, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then coming back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 7, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay, in broken recyclable pots. We have this treasure. Why, Paul? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The gospel provides a counterintuitive way to think about wisdom and power. We see it in Christ as he died on Adam's tree. Paul talked about it when he noted how the magnification of wisdom and power happens in the humble soil of Adamic clay pots. Maybe weakness would be the order of the day because our spiritual enemies will quash us if we trot out our native abilities to fight in the spiritual realm. Satan is formidable. We need surpassing power, as Paul called it. We need to tap into something that does not belong to us. This vital understanding should encourage our weaker brothers and our weaker sisters everywhere. We don't have to be like our pastors or whomever we may envy, wishing we had an ounce of what they have. We don't need their strengths to fight this war. We're looking for 
weakness. The fertile ground which God sprouts his wisdom and power. The very things the world perceives as weak and foolish. Though we are humans, we do not fight like humans. Worldly weapons, which is how humans fight, strength and power, worldly weapons will not do us any good in the spiritual realm. If they did, we would get the glory and we would not need our big brother. We want to rely on him, and we can only do that through the weakness and foolishness of the gospel. Perhaps it would help you at this juncture to think about some of the worldly weapons that maybe you employ to win your battles. And so as we, as I wrap up this podcast, I want to ask a couple of questions, and then I want to unpack this just a little bit. What do you pull from your arsenal of human weaponry when things go wrong for you? When someone annoys you, when someone ticks you off, do you go into your human weaponry, your arsenal, your human arsenal, and pull out something to win the battle? What do you do to get your way when things do not go your way? What are some of your favorite weapons? Some worldly weapons could include such things as, so when I'm talking about a human arsenal, weaponry typically that humans use to fight spiritual battles, they could use such things as excusing, blaming, bitterness, unforgiveness, lying, partial truths, relying on human ingenuity, justifying anger, pouting, silent treatment, threats, intimidation, control, and other manipulative tactics. These are some of the human weaponry that we use that comes from our strength, our wisdom, which is not wisdom at all. When you go into battle with the weapons of the flesh, you may get your way and and even win the skirmish with a combatant who does not have your human-powered prowess. The problem is, is that you will not make any progress in your spiritual growth, and you will not develop deep spiritual relationships, and you will not build God's fabulous name. This way of fighting was actually how some of the people in Corinth fought. They relied on human ingenuity, personal preferences, pet peeves, and innate strengths to persuade the masses while building their reputations. I understand why they picked those weapons because I experience similar temptations when it's time to go toe-to-toe with someone. It makes sense to choose from the arsenal of worldly strengths even though the real battle is not in the physical world with that person who is across the room from you. Imagine Job using his ingenuity to go against Satan when you think about Job 1.12, as I shared that verse with you a few moments ago. Human weapons cannot effectively fight against the warfare that we must engage in. It's like a child beating off a robber with a water pistol. He can use the best plastic weapon, but his best is not good enough. The real battle is not what he sees, not the person across from the room, across the room from you, but it's what he cannot see. 
Our campaigns are not against flesh and blood, and the weapons of our warfare cannot be flesh and blood, human weaponry, but the arsenal from the divine domain. God's arsenal are manifestations of the work of the Spirit, for example. Rather than reacting in sinful anger at that person across the room from you, the weapons of human reasoning, we can respond differently. For example, we can respond with humility, the weakness of Christ. When we live out the weakness of Christ, we manifest the work of the Holy Spirit. In James 1, 19 and 20, it says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If you want to produce the righteousness of God, then human weaponry will not work. We need divine weaponry to fight in the invisible world. Proverbs 18 or 15 one says this, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word turns up anger. Though many people perceive humility to be foolish, according to our world's way of thinking and reacting, it is the power of God, not just for our salvation, but also for our sanctification. The nature of the conflict determines the kind of weapons we use. Worldly weapons can get you your way at the moment, but you will lose spiritually and you will lose relationally. When in a war, you're doing battle from a position of strength, if you want to win. And when it comes to spiritual warfare, be sure it's not your strength you are taking into the battle. The power you need is the mighty hand of God. For example, the fruit of the Spirit presents us with nine manifestations that enable us to fight a good fight in the spiritual realm. I would love for you to take the nine elements of the fruit of the Spirit, write them down, and then compare yourself to each one of those and see how well you're doing and fighting in the spiritual realm. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.